at this point in time, they are not there. And that's also another big problem for this framework agreement. It's isolated. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Today's episode is brought to you by the University of Denver's Joseph Corbell School of International Studies. Corbell graduates make the world a better place, working toward global solutions in climate change, international security, economics, development, and diplomacy. 95% of Corbell students get jobs after graduation, and Corbell alumni are power players around the world. Learn more about the seven different degree programs offered at the University of Denver Joseph Corbell School of International Studies by visiting corbell.du.edu. In April 2019, Sudanese dictator Omar al-Bashir was ousted in a coup after nearly 30 years in power. The coup followed months of mass civilian protests against his regime. The military leaders who toppled al-Bashir soon entered into a transitional governing partnership that included civilian leadership. The stated plan was to hand over full government control to civilians by November 2021. However, in October 2021, the military leaders mounted yet another coup, purging civilians from the government. The Sudanese people and the military government have suffered mightily since then. Under heavy international pressure, the military government entered an agreement with civilian leaders for another democratic transition in Sudan. That agreement was signed on December 5th of last year, and this is where I pick up the story with my guest today, Hala Al-Karib, a Sudanese activist, research practitioner, and director of the Strategic Initiative for Women in the Horn of Africa. We kick off discussing who negotiated that December 5th agreement and its key provisions before discussing the many layers of challenges ahead to a successful democratic transition in Sudan. As always, if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover, please send me an email using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And today's conversation was produced in part with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, and it is part of a series of episodes featuring African expertise on peace and security issues in Africa. And lastly, do become a premium subscriber to the podcast. You can do so directly in Apple Podcasts or by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches. Thank you. Now, here is my conversation with Hala El-Karib, director of the Strategic Initiative for Women in the Horn of Africa.
can you explain to listeners who were the entities that signed that December 5th framework agreement? So the December 5th framework agreement, it's a initiation of a political process in simple terms between the military who made the coup on October 25th, 221, and large portion of Sudan political parties who represented the civilian forces who were leading the civilian government at the time of the coup. So not all the Sudan civilian forces are on board and signatories, but to the Sudan agreement, but majority of them are part of the framework agreements. And Sudan civilian political parties are a wide range of political organizations. Among them are the Sudan Congress Party, Sudan Democratic Unionist Party, Sudan Umma Party, and those kind of the large political parties that were part of the Freedom and Change Front, the front that was leading the uprising against Bashir, and they were the one who developed the framework of the civilian government in 2019. At the time in 2019, they were a broader coalition of civil society who were part of the agreement with the military. At this point, the signatories to the framework agreement are predominantly political parties with the military factions who are mostly Sudan Defense Forces or the Sudanese army and part of the paramilitary organizations and some of the formal rebel groups as well, but not all of them. So it is a narrower coalition that entered into the December 5th framework agreement than the coalition of civilians that initiated the revolution in 2019. But as you said, it's still a fairly representative group of civilian leaders who entered into this December 5th framework agreement. I would say to some extent, the military coup has taken place in October 25th, uh, 221. Between October 25th to date, Sudanese military has completely failed to develop a framework of governance. And the country situation is in turmoil since then. Of course, you know, we have regular protests and we have a large number of militarized groups who are occupying many cities, particularly in Darfur and peripheries of Khartoum and and so on. So, but the military has failed completely in forming a government system or in reaching any form of agreements or engagements with the civilian forces. And I think the framework agreement, which is largely motivated by the United Nations mission in Sudan, UNITAMS, and mediators from the African Union and from the EGAD, the Intergovernmental Authority, which works mostly in the Horn of Africa, 
it's basically an attempt to stabilize the country and to move the political process a step forward. So as you said, this agreement was mediated and supported by the UN, the African Union, and the regional group IGAD or EGAD. And it was the military coup leaders and this civilian coalition that negotiated this framework agreement. Broadly speaking, what does this framework agreement say or stipulate? So the framework agreement stipulates a transition into civilian governments. It stipulates the army, you know, kind of let go of controlling the civilian parts of governments, that the political party elites should form a government that will take control of the civil part of the governments, including all the kind of ministries and interior ministries, the police forces, and so on. It also stipulates the integrations of the different armies, including the Rabbit Support Force or the RSF, which is one of the biggest paramilitary forces that was initiated during Bashir's time and started as an armed militia that fought on behalf of Sudanese army in Darfur, mostly against the Darfur rebel groups, but primarily the activity of the RSF was, and until now, was mostly about, you know, enabling certain populations in Darfur, the Arabized pastoral communities, to have access to more lands. So they kind of grow out of that role. And they became one of the very strong actors and players in Sudan's political platforms. You know, the fact that they also were the biggest suppliers of soldiers to the Saudi coalitions in the Yemen's war. And in the past few years, they also became very much involved in gold mining. And they established partnership with the Russian Wagner company. So they have access to resources. They had strong connections to some of the regional actors. And so that gave them a very strong position. And the leader of the RSF is the number two person in the coup. So the leader of the RSF is the number two person in the Sudanese government currently, one of the military leaders that enacted the coup and recently entered into a negotiation with the civilian forces. So what does this December 5th agreement say happens with the RSF, which is a paramilitary group? So the December agreement, it says that there should be a process where the RSF can be integrated into Sudanese military. And so Sudan to have one army, because right now the RSF and the leader of the RSF are functioning as a parallel kind of military structure to the Sudanese army that's well-equipped, have resources, and you know have economic investments in the country and have hands and footprints across the country. But there is no time frame in terms of when. There is no methodology in terms of how this is going to happen or how it can be mediated. So in broad terms, what's happening at the moment is that 
there is an expectations of transitions of power similar to what happened in 2019, yet in my view, in a way more volatile political and economic situation. Bearing in mind though, that there is other actors, which is we have the Muslim Brotherhood who are very active still and organized and they don't accept the fact that they are not part of the framework agreement. We have the actors of the Juba peace agreement. And you'll have to explain Um, what that is. The Juba peace agreement, in my understanding, was a broad peace agreement between the transitional government and a variety of rebel groups as a way to sort of fold them into the political process and have them at least attempt to lay down their arms. Exactly. But it also came at a price of making sure that they has to be rewarded for letting down their arms by given political positions and given access also to investments and given access to resources, including mining, including other resources and privileges. So the actors from the Juba Peace Agreement, which are two major Darfuri used to be armed movements, one of them is the justice and equality movement are very, very close to the Muslim Brotherhood and they definitely work in coordination with them. The other group is not, but those two groups, they are to a large extent, you know, has been part of the military coup, you know, has given them great opportunities in terms of having access to power, to resources. And so having, again, the political parties and the civilian factions of, you know, the different political parties entering into the power, that kind of poses a threat to their interest. And this is actually one of the threats of the frameworks agreement, in addition to many other threats. I mean, it sounds like you are not terribly optimistic that the framework agreement will indeed lead to uh, meaningful transitions towards democracy. I mean, you have this challenge with the RSF, the main, most powerful military force in the country, somehow needs to get integrated into the Sudanese National Army. You have these other political challenges that you just described are these challenges insurmountable in your view? I think the biggest challenge that the framework agreement is confronted with is presumably if they manage to navigate their way and form a government, considering all the regional and internal threats, because Sudan is also surrounded by actors who are not interested in seeing Sudan going through a form of democratic process and elections. And those actors, they have definitely very strong interest in Sudan and the position of Sudanese government. And just to be clear, presumably you are referring to key players like actors in the Gulf, Egypt. Yeah, you're referring to Egypt and actors in the Gulf as well. Yeah. But particularly Egypt, you know, definitely. So what is I, Egypt's position that might undermine the transition 
in Sudan? Well, Egypt is definitely a pro-military uh, ruling in Sudan. The connections between the Egyptian army and the Sudanese army is a historical one. And the interest, of course, is on the water, you know, on the security issues. And of course, with all the tension that's happening against, with the, against Ethiopia and the Renaissance Dam and all these situations, you know. So Egypt definitely sees Sudan as kind of a backyard where it needs to constantly guard and make sure that there is no security threats, particularly to the issue of the Nile and the issue of the water. And Egypt presumably has learned how to work well with the military leaders of Sudan. And there's a big, a big kind of, yeah, and there's a big question mark over if there is a democratic transition and say a group like the Muslim Brotherhood gains power, you know, they are, are not necessarily likely to be allied with Egypt in any meaningful way to the same extent that the military leaders are. Yes, but I think also Egypt is threatened more with having a pro-democracy government than the Muslim Brotherhood, because the Muslim Brotherhood controls Sudan, you know, for 30 years through the military. And eventually they managed somehow, because Bashir's regime was a collaboration between Sudanese military and the Muslim Brotherhood. So they managed somehow to satisfy Egypt's to a large extent, and especially in the after the mid-1990s, when the friction has happened between the political faction of the Muslim Brotherhood and those who went ahead and supported, you know, the military factions. So, but I think the concern is a pro-democracy government. The concern is also a government that would inspire Egyptian people to rebel, you know, against mm -hmm. the military yeah. in Egypt and so many other things. But that's definitely a big challenge that should be taken into consideration. And, you know, I think Egypt is worth to be considered seriously in any political process when it comes to Sudan. That's a reality of things. So I think you're saying it's less specifically the Muslim Brotherhood, more the idea of having a democracy at Egypt's doorstep that is potentially exactly. concerning from Egypt's point of view. I wanted to ask you specifically about the role of women in this transition. Women were very much at the forefront of the 2019 revolution that led to the ouster of Omar al-Bashir. In this December 5th agreement and in negotiations more broadly, are women still playing that central role that they did back in 2019? No, no. It's, that it's seems so to be a problem. It's a big problem because the lack of inclusivity, and that's also the other challenge of this framework agreement, is the isolation, the level of isolation that the framework agreement struggled with. The initial engagement, which is the constitutional document of 2019 between the military and civilian, it had massive support and backup from Sudanese, particularly from women and youth who were at the forefront of the protest, who are the majority of the inhabitants of the country are mostly women and young people below the age of 30. 
And I think one of the challenges that the Sudan political parties are struggling with is, I believe they, to a large extent, they took for granted and undermined, you know, the power that's been held by women and young people in terms of securing the success of this framework agreement. And that could have been happening by doing so many things that has not been done. Women numbers in Sudan political parties are very small, and that's happening for a reason. I mean, the Sudanese political parties, they never went out of their way to accommodate women into their political structures. And so they have minimal influence or no influence when it comes in political decision making. So they are not present around the table as it should be. It's very minimal, very uh, superficial, and at the level of tokenism. But then women are heavily present on civil society because they found their place in civil society, they established their own civil society, and the exclusion of civil society in its broader term, and I'm talking about youth association, grassroots women associations, those actors who were directly influenced by the armed conflicts are directly exposed to the violations of the military and all those actors who could have actually been the backbone of any political process. At this point in time, they are not there. And that's also another big problem for this framework agreement. It's isolated. So you described just so many challenges to specifically the implementation of the December 5th agreement, but more broadly, a meaningful transition to democracy between, as you just said, the exclusion of women, the potentially nefarious role of Egypt, the challenge of integrating the RSF into the military and other challenges around political inclusion. What can the international community do to try and help Sudan overcome some of those obstacles? Are there any specific steps or roles of of the United States, the European Union, the UN, Mm -hmm. or the African Union to kind of nudge Mm -hmm. this transition in the right direction and help overcome some of these key challenges? I think the international community really need to hold both the military and Sudan political parties accountable to the process. And meaning that, that has to be interpreted into serious steps. First of all, this process is struggled with lack of transparency. It doesn't have a voice. There is no formal media outlet that speaks on behalf of this process to the Sudanese people. The conversation is so scattered and it's coming from different actors. And that shows, you know, a level of lack of accountability from the military, of course, you know, who are, you can feel that they are not quite enthusiastic about this process. And also the fact that the political parties and political organizations, they underestimate the level of work requires to actually enable this process to work. And I think the international community should be very 
firm in terms of holding both parties accountable to transparency, to engagements with different factions of Sudanese society. Sudan political parties, they need really to expand beyond the narrow framework of their party politics, because this is a national process. And I think they can open up to listen to the voices of Sudanese in their different position. Right now, the process is very limited to a competitions over who is going to be in government and who is going to be appointed to do what. And, and, and that's very highly problematic because the challenges down the road are really massive. And if you are not cultivating support from diverse Sudanese population at this point in time, including the women, including the youth, including the different people in Sudan across the country, it will be very difficult to actually sustain this process or even to make it work. Also, the international community should invest seriously in this position. Sudan political party re parties really struggle when it comes to their capacity, when it comes to their ability to reach out themselves, you know, their membership, their structure is very, very poor. Those are political organizations that have been struggling with repression and alienations, and they have continued to just act based on self-preservations for close to a half a century living under dictatorship. So a real and true investment mm. on the political parties to help them, you know, to lead this process and to hold them accountable is very important. Thank you so much for your time, Hala. This was very helpful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts.